Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up uh, to 1 John. We're up to chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Uh, In our study of 1 John, uh, we've worked our way up to chapter 3, verse 11. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 18 today. Um, Before we we read our passage and think about a few things, if you have the notes or or you uh, looked at them online, you would know the title of this particular sermon is Love, Hate, and the Example of Christ. Love, hate, and the example of Christ. As, as we think about this particular title and these things that are happening in this passage, I, I want to suggest to you and encourage your thinking to consider these terms love and hate. It's my concern that these terms, love and hate, have in some sense lost their significance in, in the culture today. Because I've said things like, like this this past week. I love pizza and ice cream. Amen. Yes, thank you. And I have also said that I hate traffic. Again, amen. We, we, were, um, we were talking about COVID this past week, and one of the many blessings, I shouldn't say many, that was terrible. One of the blessings of COVID was the fact that there was no traffic. Uh, when, when we had to go into the city for my wife's doctor's appointment, we actually street parked on 34th and 3rd. Can you imagine? I didn't even know that was possible. But I have said these things. I love pizza and ice cream. I hate traffic. Now, when the Bible talks about love and hate, does it mean the same thing that I mean when I say I love pizza and I hate traffic? And the answer is no. Because I would encourage you to even think, think about things that you love, things that you would say that you love. And I would pose the question to you, why do you love them? Why do you say that you love the things that you love? But equal to that, we we must consider the things that you would say that you hate. What are the things that you hate and why Do you hate them? And is your definition of love and hate the Bible's definition of love and hate? Here's the the thesis for our passage today before we read the passage. If we we have a biblical definition of love and hate, which I hope to, to do for us in a moment, one of the temptations that we potentially will constantly have as Christians is to move from love to hate. That that there'll be a battle that we wrestle with and a temptation that we might have to move from love to hate. And, And this might be something that we fight our entire lives. But love and hate, according to this text, lead to radically different ways that our lives, the trajectory of our lives and the way that we live our lives. And radically different fates. Love leads to one eternal fate, and hate leads to a different eternal fate. And let me just be very clear. If there's nothing else, if there is nothing else that you get from this particular sermon today, hate has no place in the body of Christ. No place in the body of Christ and will make you miss the purpose of God for your life. If you live a life of hate, this text will be clear in that you are not a believer. And in fact, you will miss the entire purpose that God has laid out for us as Christians. So with this in your minds, I want to ask you to stand again one more time, if you're able, for a reading from the Word of God. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, it says this. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. One of the very first things that we see in this particular text, one of the first points that I want to stress to you today out of this text is the call to live in love, not like Cain, nor for the approval of Cain. Live in love, not like Cain, nor for the approval of Cain. Let me suggest to you from this particular text, there are two elements of living in love. The first is one that we've already heard in the text previously, that righteous living is born out of a love for God. Living in love starts with a love for God. Now look at verse 11 where John starts here. He says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. And John's already told us that there was a message that that we heard before this particular one from the beginning. That message was in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if you remember from the previous sermons, this idea of God being light is God being absent from darkness. And the comparison that John makes is life or light with holiness and darkness with sinfulness. And so the foundation of our love, the foundation of living in love, is understanding the perfection and holiness of God. This might be the most important piece of of all our theology, all of our understanding of biblical truth, that God is perfect, and he is perfect in that he is sinless. Now, why would this be so important? Why would it be so important that we start with and we remind ourselves of the perfection of God? Especially in a conversation when we're talking about loving other people. Can I be honest with you? I love all of you. I really do. More than you can comprehend. But sometimes, some of you make that very difficult to do. Because sometimes I am difficult to love. There are points and times in your life, and I've even said this of my children, I love all of my children, but sometimes I don't like some of them very much. Because we are difficult to love. If the foundation for my love for you is how lovable you are, there will be points and times for it where it is very difficult for me to love you because you're difficult to love. But if the foundation of my love for you is the perfect, sinless nature of God, which will never change, then the foundation upon which my love is built for you is the foundation of a God who never changes. His perfect holiness, his sinless perfection is what motivates me to love you. His love for me in his perfect sinlessness motivates my love for you. We must continually go back and be reminded who God is if we're going to continually go forward in living in love. God and his nature must be the primary motivator for the way that we live. And out of that love that God has ministered to us, built on the foundation of his perfect sinlessness, then we orient our lives in living out love in a service-oriented way. That's the second element of living in love. Righteous living out of a love for God 
and service-oriented living out of love for others. He says one of the implications of understanding who God is is that we should love one another. Now, here's, here's how this becomes a natural response to how uh, those around us. Once you have this idea of the greatness of God, then it should be natural for us to move from our awe of God to loving others by serving them. And just like John talked about previously, he's talking about love and the trajectory of your life as something that's habitual. He's saying that for a believer, love should be the normal course, the normal habit of our lives. The call here is to structure our lives in such a way that love and service to others takes a primary place in our planning and the structures of our lives. Let me just suggest to you that, that the devil and the world do not want you to live your life this way. One of the greatest lies of the modern day is that the greatest, most satisfying life you could live is a life with you at the center that the most satisfying life is one that is lived in service to self. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this is so counter-Christ, this is the attitude of the Antichrist, that service to others wouldn't even be on their radar, but service of self would be primary. And our natural fleshly desires default to this position of seeking ways in which we can serve ourselves. But, but we, might, we must think about our lives from, from greater to lesser. If I want to have a life that is lived like Christ, a life that on my deathbed I have no regrets about how I served others to the glory of God, we must think about how to live out of love for God in service for others. There must be a strategy in which I think about the course of my life with loving God and serving others as the goal. And God, in some sense, has already given us the church as the launching pad for this type of living. And let me just say this, too, because oftentimes th this can come off as a rebuke, when in fact, I think John also means it as an incredible encouragement. Because there are many of you who are part of this church who understand this concept of loving God and serving others, and the way in which you serve others as a part of this church is vast and profound. So don't hear this as primarily a, a rebuke if you're striving to love God and striving to, hear, to serve others. Hear it as an incredible encouragement to your soul that what you are doing in the eyes of God is wonderful and a blessing to us and brings Him glory. But let me encourage you. If you are not serving anyone around you, you must consider how you might take steps to change this this week. And maybe it starts with something just as simple as a phone call to encourage someone in the Lord. You will never know, you will never know how much it means to someone to have another person call just with their good in mind. It really takes so little to encourage someone to keep going in their walk with Christ. But, but what I'm encouraging you here to do is to think about your normal ebb and flow of your life, how your normal days are structured, and to consider whether or not service of others factors into your thinking as you structure your day. And if not, that you would take steps to change that. Now, the second point here that I want to stress to you that, that we see here in particular in verse 12 is this idea that the temptation will be to live like Cain. If you remember, what I've stressed to you many times is that when the Bible tells us to not do something, that usually means that our normal tendency will be to do that thing. And so it says here in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Let me suggest to you what John is doing here is he is setting up Cain as a typical Old Testament example of wickedness. If you remember the story of Cain back in Genesis chapter 4, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 4. Keep your finger in verse, uh, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to come back here. 
But Genesis chapter 4, let's just be reminded about the story of Cain. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man from the help of the Lord. So the Bible records for us that Cain is the first child ever born after creation. And then right after that, it says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. So Cain is Abel's older brother. And it says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of the flock and of their fat, uh, their fat portions. Now, there's something I want you to see right away, uh, because many of you have given me a hard time about my love for bacon, but what we know immediately from the text in Genesis chapter 4, that the vegetarians are the bad guys, Okay. Now, he continues on in verse 4. And the Lord regarded for Abel, or had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And again, what we see in this particular text is the very first counseling session ever recorded. And it was given by God to Cain. And, and you can see what's happened here. Especially if you have children, you, you know exactly what's happening here. One child is angry with another child, and you can see it on their face they're so mad. And God comes to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at the door. And Cain doesn't receive God's counsel. And so this should be another source of encouragement to you. There are some people who are so resistant to biblical counsel that even the counsel from God himself is not heeded by them. So if you have someone in your life that you're trying to help and they don't receive the counsel from the Word of God, know that at times in the past God spoke directly to people right to their face and they didn't receive it. But then what happens? Cain doesn't receive God's counsel. We're up to Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field. Now think about how evil this is. Cain speaks to his brother they're out in the field, potentially working together. Cain rises up against his brother Abel, and he kills him. There's only, at this point, two children on the planet, and one kills the other. So again, parents, be encouraged. Kids have been naughty since the beginning of time. Be comforted to know that children have been misbehaving since there were children. But the point of this particular text here, the reason that, that the verbiage that John uses to describe Cain, this word murdered, is to help us understand the brutality of what is happening here. One brother lures another brother out away from everyone else so he can murder him. And if you remember the rest of the story, God comes to Cain and gives him an opportunity to confess and repent, and instead he buries his brother's body and lies to God. Now, you tell me, how foolish is sin? Did God need Cain to tell him where Abel's body was? He did not. But Cain thinks he can deceive God and perpetuate his sin and continue on in that particular sin. But he brutally mother, murders his brother. And 1 John chapter 3, if you turn back over to 1 John chapter 3, the second half of verse 12. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, what does it say? It says, and why did he murder him? And now we get some, some continual insight into this Cain and Abel story. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What is this text telling us here? Jealousy is the foundation of hate. And hate, unchecked, can lead to murder. 
And before you think that's an extreme leap, hear what Jesus has to say about built-up anger. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says something very similar. He says, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's the equation that's being painted. Anger hate and jealousy are equal to murder and ultimately will carry the same punishment from God. But isn't this just how sin works? It starts out as something that seems to be so small. And I've confessed to you that I have been at times jealous of people. And if you are honest, I'm sure you would admit the same thing. But in that moment, I must recognize what's happening inside of me. That if I don't check this sin by the power of God through the working of the Holy Spirit, it can lead down a path that ends up so extreme. It ends up somewhere that I may have never anticipated. And remember these words. You can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. The choices that you make, if you continue in jealousy and anger, will lead down a path that will be very hard for you to come back from. And the only way that you can even have the opportunity to repent and turn back on that path is because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do so. Let me issue you a strong of caution as I possibly can. Sin starts very small. And if it's not checked, it can lead all the way down to murder. I think there's something else, though, that's happening in this text that I want to encourage you to see. There's a huge caution here to not live like Cain, to not live as Cain, to not hate, to not be jealous, and ultimately to not be a murderer. But I think there's something else that's, that's happening in here And I think it's important for us to understand. Because the temptation, I think, is double-sided. The temptation first starts out living like Cain, but is equally as dangerous as that is. So is living for the approval of Cain. Because living for the approval of Cain also leads to death. And it's living for those who want your death. Now, what do I mean by this? Look at verse 13. It says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We shouldn't marvel at the fact that those who don't love Christ also don't love those who live for him. And remember, in this previous few verses, the argument that's being built is that hate equals murder. And so he, he says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world wants to see your life die. And so think about this for a moment. Oftentimes, when we are living under the world's principles, we are living according to someone who wants your death. When you live for the world's value system or someone who is enamored with the world's value system, they don't want what's best for you. They want you to die. They are diametrically opposed to the very thing that we love. And so let me say it to you this way. Stop trying to get love and admiration from people who don't love and admire righteous living. We're going to spend so much effort and so much time in our lives trying to earn the approval of people who don't love the thing that we love the most, which is Jesus Christ. Let me say it to, to you, young people. Kids, look up here for a second. You might not understand the full ramifications of this yet because right now, you, your main bulk of your friends are right here in this church. And maybe you have some outside. But you are going to meet people in your life who are going to try to convince you 
that living differently than the Bible, than God's Word, is good for you. And they might say things like, I love you, and I want you to do X, Y, and Z that is totally contrary, totally opposed to God's Word. And let me tell you, that person doesn't care about you. They don't love you. Jesus Christ loves you. And so be very careful when you listen to those who do not love God, who do not love His Word, who do not live righteously, because they will encourage you to live differently than the Word, than the word of God calls you to. Brothers and sisters, the difficulty with this is that there might be people in your life that you care about who don't love the thing that you love. And you might be seeking the approval of a family member, maybe even your spouse, someone in your workplace who doesn't love righteous living. They don't love God. And you're caught in a place where doing the right thing is often very difficult. Let me say it to you this way. Here's how I want to encourage you to think about this. Instead of letting them bring death into your life, bring life to these dying ones by living righteously to point them to Christ. Instead of letting them bring death into your life, Bring life to these dying ones by living righteously to point them to Christ. The story of Abel seems to end with his death. But many of us are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. That's considered the Christian hall of fame. It lists many people who suffered for their faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 continues this story about Abel. This is what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, and though, and through his faith though he died, he still speaks. Brothers and sisters, this one who so little in the Scripture seems to be recorded about is listed in the Christian Hall of Fame as being one who lived righteously for the glory of God. And so even today, his story still speaks to us. Do not discount the life-bringing nature of righteous living to the world around you. But John continues on this, in this particular idea of what's happening here in this passage in verses 14 and 16. In verse 14 and 16, I think that the main idea that's being communicated here is love comes from Christ and leads to eternal life and radical service. Here's a concept I, I want to um, play with a little bit. We were all born in a physical location. Many of us were born in a hospital. Some of us were born in a home. And all of us moved from that place that we were born I didn't stay at a Tumwell Regional Healthcare Center, which, thank God, that's like one of the worst hospitals in America. We left there, and my mom and dad, we, we took us home. And for most of us, that home was temporal. I only lived at home till I was 17, then I went away to college. And since then, my wife and I have moved several times. We've moved several times here in New York. So physically, I was born in one place, but I've moved to several different places. But there, there is a spiritual condition, a spiritual location that all of us were born into, and we can't move away from on our own. This verse says that that condition, that location, is death. But verse 14 says something very emphatic to us. It says, we know that we have passed from death into life. We've made a journey from death into life. John in his gospel in chapter 5, verse 24 says this, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. This is offered to you today. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you still reside in death. But Jesus Christ calls out to you today and says, if you will call upon me, if you hear this word and you believe in me, and you confess that you're a sinner and receive the forgiveness that he gives, you won't come into judgment, but instead you'll move from the position of death into the position of life. And let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, even though we can change our physical location almost as many times as we want, our spiritual location will not be changed. The journey from death into life is a permanent migration. That's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But how do we know that we've made this permanent migration? How do we know that that this has happened to us? And what does the text say? It says, because we love our fellow Christians. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What this passage is is assuring us is that you can know you are saved if you have made it a habit of your life to love other Christians. And so if you are actively loving other Christians and you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be incredibly encouraged by this passage today and reassured in the knowledge that you know Jesus Christ and you abide in him. But this, this passage also tells us that there's a second thing that we know. In verse 16, he says, we, by this, we know something specific. What is it that we know specifically? This text says it's love. And this love that we come to have known is by and from Christ himself. Verse 16 starts with this phrase, by this. It's, it's called uh, a phrase that's called an instrument of means, meaning that we know what love is because of how we have seen and experienced the love of Christ. The way that he showed love to us, though, is by laying down his life for us. And his laying down his life for us made it possible for us to make the journey from death into life. And not just physical death or physical life, but spiritual death into eternal life. And he laid down his life on behalf of us. The wording here that's given here is something that's unique to John. If you remember in John chapter 10, he uses a very similar phrase. He says in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then again in verse 15 of John chapter 10. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Or again in verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, this again is foundational to our theology for us to meditate on to motivate our living. Nobody took Jesus Christ's life. The Romans did not take Jesus Christ's life. The Jews did not take Jesus Christ's life. You did not take Jesus Christ's life. Jesus laid his life down for you. And this reveals to us what love really is. That Jesus Christ would lay down his life to provide salvation for you and me. But not only does Christ's love reveal true love to us, it also sets an example for us of what love is and how we should show love. In a sense, it's a moral obligation that once you've experienced the love of Christ, we should share that love with others. Once you've experienced the love of Christ, you can't help but share it with others. Let me try to give you an analogy here to consider this. One of my favorite things is a starry sky. 
Now, it's actually very hard to see here on Long Island because of all the ambient light from the ceiling, or from the ceiling, from the city. Sometimes you can see the North Star. Other times you can feel or see a few stars in the sky. But once you get away from the city and you see the night sky, it looks like an ocean of stars. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And I actually love going camping with people and, and people who've lived here in the city or on Long Island their entire life maybe see a truly starlit sky for the very first time when they navigate off the island. It's one of the most beautiful things that you're ever going to see. Let me ask you this question. Will the beauty of the sky be diminished by the number of eyes looking upon it and sharing in its beauty? No. The same is true with the love of God. The love of God is, an, is inexhaustible, and the number of people that have experienced it from our hand doesn't diminish the love of God. It only makes it shine brighter. Now, I want you to stop and consider the extreme level of love that God has given us here. In verse 16, he says, by this we know love that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What he is saying is that we should love each other so much as Christians that I would be willing to die for you, and you would be willing to die for me. And before we, we try to wiggle out of what John is saying here, let me be clear. He is saying the love of God should be so profound in our lives that we should be willing to do for our brothers and sisters what Christ has done for us. That if it came down to it, that you and I would be willing to die for each other. And it's so important that we have this clear in our minds as we look back at verse 15, which we're going to do in just a moment. But, but here's, here's how I, I hope that you encapsulate this in your mind, all of these verses together. Love sacrifices and serves, hate murders and steals. Love sacrifices and serves, hate murders and steals. Now, why would I say this about hate? This is where we look at verse 15. Hate comes from the devil and leads to murder and eternal death. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we reference this even back to verse 12, we're reminded that the murderer in this story is Cain, and Cain comes from the evil one. What that means is to hate another Christian is demonic in nature. And hate, as we've already said, will eventually lead to murder in some way. You, you might not try to take another person's life, but you will try to hurt them in some way. And oftentimes, we'll only act as the situation allows. But here's the danger. Here's the danger in playing with sin and with hate. Um, anybody else out there trying to eat healthy? No, you guys are just like, no, forget it, pizza and ice cream all day long. All right, some of us. Some of us might even be trying to lose a little weight. And I admitted before I love pizza and ice cream. How foolish is it of me to have pizza and ice cream in my house continually when I'm trying to eat broccoli and chicken. How long is it going to be before I eat that pizza and ice cream? I can tell you right now, it's as soon as I get in my house, I'm going to eat that pizza and ice cream. A nice slice that you reheat in the oven where the bottom gets crispy and the cheese is soft, oh. And then you finish it off with some cookie dough ice cream, mmm. It's magic. But it's foolish for me to think that I could keep that in my house and not eat it. The same thing is true, brothers and sisters, of hate and jealousy. You keep that in your heart and mind, it's only a matter of time before you're going to act on it. But I think John's after something else in this passage. Because John's speaking to Christians about people who are not Christians. That's the point. You can't say that you love God and hate your brother because hate is equal to murder. Now look at the end of verse 15. 
He says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The point is, they don't know Christ. They don't have eternal life living in them because they don't love. Now, why would John say this to Christians? John expects that Christians will hold other people who call themselves Christians accountable for their attitudes and actions. That we're to strive to protect each other from so-called followers of Christ who live and act in hate. And that in the church there should be no room given to those who live in hate. That those who do not love inside of the church should be confronted and held accountable for the things that they claim to believe but then live completely opposite of that. Because if hate is allowed in the church, hate will lead to jealousy, or jealousy leads to hate, hate leads to murder, and murder will bring about the demise of this body of believers. And so the anticipation here is that John is giving us this command so that you and I will lovingly encourage each other to love others. And oftentimes, the most loving thing that we can do for someone and for each other is to call each other on our sin and help us and lead us to live in love for Jesus Christ. But when we've experienced the love of God and we see the example of Jesus Christ in his love, Christ's love helps us see God's purpose for our work and our possessions. Look at verses 17 and 18. John's just told us that you should be willing to die for another Christian, that you should be willing to give up their li- your life like Christ gave up his life. But now he says true love, in some sense, varies from greater, the sacrifice of your life, to lesser acts of service. And he says in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has the world's possession, and this is very interesting in the inductive class today, Do you know how much money you have to make a year to be in the 1% of rich folks in the world? Do you know how much it is? $32,000 a year. Now, you tell me, can you live on Long Island for $32,000 a year? I can't. And the reason I'm saying it that way is because we, we want a little slack. We want a little room to go like, I barely have enough to live. But my question to you is, how much do you need? How much do you need? Will you give to help others when you have a boat and a summer house and two motorcycles? How much do you need? What's very interesting in this particular text and what even happened this morning was that the men seemed more apt to die for someone else than they were to give their time and their money to someone else. Because dying is just theoretical. And if I die, I only have to do that once. But if I get involved in serving you in love, that might be the rest of my life. And I don't think any of you are concerned about dying for me today, are you? I'll definitely die for you if it never happens. But to give, to love? Look what has to happen according to the text. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, what does he have to do? Yet closes his heart against him. The implication here is that the love of God has opened your heart to love others. And so when you see someone in need and you have means by which to meet those needs, you have to actually close your heart to prevent yourself from helping them. And what does he say? How does God's love abide in him? Do you get the whole picture that's being painted here? If you are unwilling to, in love, move to help someone else with the possessions that you have, then you don't actually love God, and by extension, you are a murderer. 
Let that sit in your heart and mind for a little bit. God's love cannot abide in someone who does not love, at the very least, their brothers and sisters. Because God's love is the source of love in the believing community. That means if love is not perpetuated in the believing community, it means that the love of God doesn't abide in the hearts of those who say they're Christians. Listen to how James words it in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And this text makes it clear that it's not just talking about talking about helping someone but actually taking the action steps to do so. It's not enough for us who have experienced the love of Christ to talk about loving others. To just give a mere outward expression of love is to express a type of false love. That's why he says in verse 17, or verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. This is why John calls us to have a true expression of love in action and not just in words. There was a great question raised in the class today, and it's a wonderful question that may be kicking around in your own mind. And the question was this, how do I know who to help? Because if you go into the city, there is any number of endless people that need help. They're everywhere. And so it's a valid question. How do you know who to help? Well, look at verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brothers. He stresses that again in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's the point that I'm making. The church is the center for giving to meet needs, especially of those with our brothers and sisters. Think about the church as the center for where you can help those who are in need. And let me give you three categories. As many of you know, we've been praying for the last several weeks because one of our missionaries, the Coonies, have been perpetually robbed by people that they know. Four times now, someone has broken into their house and robbed them. And it's someone that they're trying to minister to. They just don't know who it is. And on top of that, not only did they rob from them, they robbed from the teachers of the Kara school who have sacrificed to be there to teach these children. They're in need. All of our missionaries are in need. And so if you want to think about acts of service, of giving to those who are in need, think about our missionaries. But even as our church, part of our regular budget is a benevolence fund where we help those who are in need. One other thing that, that you've done, and this isn't a, a rebuke to our church family, this is actually me celebrating the goodness and the generosity that you have as a church. Because any time that we ask you to give to something, you overwhelm us with your generosity. And so this is actually a commendation to you because many of you give sacrificially to help others. But let me just encourage you, if you don't, in some tangible way, give to, to help those who are part of the church, your brothers and sisters, maybe that's the way that you would start serving, using the world's goods to help those who are in need. But brothers and sisters, it is clear that the world around us in this day and age, but really from the beginning, is a world that is defined by hate. 
we are seeing it as clear as we possibly can now that the devil is using hate to try to divide us as much as he possibly can. But instead, we as those who've actually experienced true love get to love others by living righteously and pointing them to Jesus Christ. And so let's ask the Lord to help us do that even today. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we are so thankful for the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even in a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together and be reminded that as an act of love, Jesus Christ laid down his life so that his body might be broken for us and his blood spilled out for us. Lord, there is no greater act of love and service that has ever been committed in the history of the world than what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. Help this truth to resonate in our hearts and minds in such a way that the love that we've been given by Jesus Christ is turned around and given to others as we seek to serve them. Lord, help us to be a community of believers that's defined and operates continually in love. Help us, Lord, to shine the light of the love of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, so that people might see Jesus Christ in us. Lord, I, I pray even now that if there is someone who claims the name of Jesus Christ and yet has jealousy or hatred against their brother or sister, that today would be the day that you would convict them and they would repent and reconcile with this brother or sister. Bring conviction upon them, Lord. Lord, I also ask that there is someone who is here that does not know the love of Jesus Christ in salvation, that today you would call them to yourself, that they would see the incredible price that you paid on behalf of us for our sin and turn to you in, in repentance. Lord, we know the devil has been about hate and jealousy and murder since the beginning. But you have commissioned us as your people to use the resources that you've blessed us with to minister love, to minister the gospel through these resources. Help us to be always looking for and making opportunities to love and serve others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.